I swear I was just walking down the street one day and probably the greatest officer I ever, ever met, uh, Stephen LaHillier, he just pulled up to me and asked me if I ever thought about being a Dallas police officer. And I was like, no. So anyway, Steve goes, hey, come out and ride with me Friday night. And I'm like, what? Wait, and I'm just this young black kid, you know, 161 pounds, 6'3". I'm like, I can come out and ride with you? When I walked in the station, I saw all those officers in that uniform looking at Josh right now. I think that's the best freaking uniform ever. Everybody switched on, you know, you had guys out there in patent leather and boots. And so we go out that night, first call out the box was a, they called it a gang fight. So at the end of the night, I asked Steve, I go, they actually pay you guys to do this? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, dude. He goes, just go down here to 2014 Maine. And, and I'm like, oh my God. So needless to say, I went home and, you know, I told my mom, I go, hey, I think I'm going to climb. Of course, mom, being a mom, she got all worried. She was like, oh, are you sure that? And I'm like, mm, yeah, that was pretty cool. I think the Dallas Police Department did such a great job at the academy. I mean, when I came out of the academy and I went through my first three years, it was a whirlwind. I mean, I was out there working nonstop. It was my goal to answer as many calls as I could, write as many tickets as I could. I was going to literally save the world. I, that's exactly how I felt. When I got that badge and that uniform, I was like, this. It's not gonna get any better than this. You're listening to the ATL Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assistant Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATL has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we wanna give a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also wanna hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree, and we all make mistakes. But together we can grow, we can heal, and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. like to welcome all of our listeners out there today and give a sincere thank you for joining us. I'm here with special guest host Chris Webb <laughs> and of course Sergeant Josh Hertel. We have our sound expert Danny Kennedy with us to hold our hand because Joe can't be with us today. And then we have an extraordinary guest sitting at our table. Actually he's sitting in the saddle. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Raised by a single mom with his two brothers from Kirbyville, Texas. Climbed on his first bucking horse at 13. Is that right? Yes, ma'am. All right. Right out of high school, he was a journeyman pipe fitter at American Bridge Shipyard. And in 1984, he joined DPD. He was 20. Uh, he did three years in patrol six years in mounted and 25 years in SWAT you do the math and all as a slick sleeve Joe's a slick sleeve too uh, he's as blue collar and as tough as they come 
He turned pro as a rodeo bareback rider in 1992, and he competed while doing his police job. I didn't know this, but it's also called bronco busting. Is that right? Yes. Okay. That sounds tough, doesn't it? <laughs> Tougher. <laughs> yeah. He has a 12-year winning streak at the Texas Peace Officers Rodeo Association bareback competition. He was inducted, inducted into the Cowboys of Color Hall of Fame in 2005. An altruistic teammate with the deepest of loyalties. Never without a dip and a cup of black motor oil coffee. He has incredible ironclad resilience. I am honored to welcome a dear teammate, a friend, the fiercest of leaders, father of three. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome... JT Curtis, badge fifty forty seven, a bona fide real bona cowboy. Fides. Thank you, Misty. That was nice. <laughs> uh, before we get started, I have to know. Tell me about growing up with with that single mom. I have to hear the burn barrel story. Yeah. Well, my mom, um, our family, or should I say, my mom and dad, they were divorced twice. So you can figure out how that went. When they finally uh, divorced the final time, I was probably five years old. And we were in Orange, Texas at the time. We moved to Kerberville, next door to my grandparents, my mom's parents. So she raised us very down to earth, very, um, I'm going to have to say colorblind. Being in Southeast Texas at that time, I, I went to school <clears throat> with a young man whose oldest brother actually dated a Caucasian female in high school. He went to school with my oldest brother and they burned a cross in his yard. Uh, at the time when at my age, it really didn't affect me, but my mom was scared to death for us because like I said, at that time, my oldest brother was working on the ranch. We were, I wasn't at the time, but my oldest brother was involved in rodeo. So she was scared to death of us traveling around uh, doing that stuff because we hung on to my oldest brother's coattail whenever he was rodeoing. So she was always worried to death about us. So she was very, I won't say strict, but what she said went because if it didn't, the nearest thing would end up beside your head. <laughs> um, as far as the burn barrel you was talking about. So you got three boys living in a double wide trailer um, so she, and she worked the third watch as a nurse in Jasper, Texas, which I'm sure everybody knows where Jasper is. So when she would come home, if you had anything laying out on the floor, you didn't put something away, she'd go, hey, you need to pick that up. And if you didn't pick it up, the next time she saw it, we disposed of our trash in a burn barrel outside. And that's where it would end up. And that happened several times with minor things, but... I had gotten a pair of pigskin boots, hand-me-downs, that I was so proud of. I was like, they were probably two sizes too big, but I was like, man, they're, these are pigskin. They had the pool holes on the top. I'm like, this is cooking. Well, she comes home one day and she goes, Terry, you need to pick up your boots out of the middle of the floor. And I don't know, I was playing grab ass or something and not paying any attention and left and went outside and, and we stay outside till two or three in the morning. I came back in, went to bed, uh, the next morning, I get up, and I'm like, where are my boots at? Where are my boots? And I'm looking, I'm looking, and I'm like, Mom, where are my boots? No answer. 
And I mean, with no answer, I'm like, oh shit. And I bust ass outside, go out there, oh yeah. They're all crispy critters in the burn barrel. And I'm like, oh my God. And you have to understand, folks, I wasn't, we weren't, it wasn't like I was going to get another pair of boots anytime soon. So I learned my lesson. And from that point forward, I think that lend credence to me being such, I won't say meticulous, but as you guys know, I'm kind You're of meticulous. A, yes. I'm kind You're of a stickler about a lot of things. So Some call it OCD. Yeah. Well, I'll blame my mom for that because yeah. it worked. So this is all starting to make sense for me now. All of it. <laughs> I'm getting on Amazon right now. We're going to get you a pair of pants. Okay, you, right. you brought up something that, that I don't want to. There's two things you brought up, and I want to get to one of them later. But the first thing I want to get to is 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 your mom always called you Terry? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Because we've always been James or JT, but mama always called you Terry. Yes. Or dad. Unless I got in trouble, and then it was like James Terry. And that's bad. Yeah, that yeah. was always okay. bad. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. One day I thought I could outrun her. I don't know how. I mean, I was a young cat, maybe like 11 or 12. And I did something and she goes, get over here. And I was like, no, I'll see you. And I took off with the front door and I don't know. <laughs> that invisible hand grabbed it. I thought I had a full living room length of head start on her, but it didn't work. So I paid the price. Tell us about getting on bareback Bronx. And, and why bareback? Why not Saddle Bronc or anything yeah. else? Um, and like I said, my oldest brother worked on a ranch, and the guy that owned the ranch, he had two kids. They were involved in reining horses, cutting, uh, team roping, calf roping, barrel racing. His kids rodeoed. The boy was a calf roper. The daughter ran barrels. Uh, so my oldest brother, they had a practice arena, so they usually roped every day in the evening when everybody got out, out of work and out of school. Uh, so we would go and do what you call push the cattle, which means you get the calf pushed up to the front of the chute. So when they call for them, you pushed them out so they'd run down the arena. Uh, so we would do that, and slowly we got involved in, you know, twirling twine just in the on the holding pin, roping them and all that, and graduated to actually roping. But when I started wanting to rodeo seriously in junior high. We couldn't afford horses. I couldn't afford horses. Uh, I couldn't pay anybody to allow me to ride their horse because that's not an inexpensive venture if you want to buy some or ride somebody's horse like that. So I thought, you know what, I'll get into rough sock riding. And I rode bareback horses and bulls in high school. My senior year of high school, I was riding a bull at a high school rodeo, and I got that voice that said, get off that bull. I got off of that bull, and I never got on another bull, and just stuck with uh, bareback riding. I'm gonna I'm gonna use one of your quotes that was in D Magazine. The first time I saw a black cowboy was when I looked in the mirror. You're six three. What's it like to be back in the shoots as a black cowboy? I can't imagine. Yeah, it's um, it's funny. A lot of times, a lot of the competitors competitors were always nice men, good. We always got along, never had any problems. Um, I've got an interesting story about that, but um, I never had a problem with competitors. Now, I must say the judges got me a few times uh, for whatever reason. I mean, it, it is what it is. You know, a lot of times my mom would say, well, if you rode better, they couldn't do that to you. I go, well, but... <laughs> 
it's not always that easy. But you know, it, I just didn't pay attention. I didn't pay attention to it. And I, I don't think anybody, or should I say, nobody ever tried me while I was out rodeoing or whatever. So I never had an issue behind it. Like I said, the judges got me, but it happened, and you know, you just have to move on. It's it's kind of like in life. If you go into a store and somebody refuses you service, does it do you any good to stand there and bitch and moan about it? No, you move on and go find another one. So I did a lot of traveling and I met a lot of nice judges too, but you know, every now and then you meet that old fort that was just kind of setting his <laughs> ways and it is what it is. I can't imagine rodeoing and doing this job. And I remember stories of you coming in on fumes, spend your last two bucks at McDonald's after rodeoing all weekend. Yeah, that Tell was... us, put us there. Well, that was my first, uh, when I turned professional, um, and when I say professional, that's the PRCA, the Professional Rodeo Cowboys Association. And I don't know if any of your listeners, some of them may, uh, Ty Murray, Jim Sharp, that was kind of the era that I was doing my professional rodeo. In fact, I think I bought Jewel's engagement ring when Ty Murray and Jewel got married, because he took a lot of my money. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, um, so when I turned professional, you know, there's a, what they call a, a route that you want to go a cer- certain times of the year. And this one was up through Kansas, up to Iowa, Sydney, Iowa. And you go to Oklahoma, Kansas, Iowa, come back. And when I came back, I was going to go to Mesquite and then Fort Worth. But yeah, I left here traveling by myself, my little Ford F-150. I would go to a rodeo, ride sleep at the rodeo grounds at night, get up the next morning, drive to the next one, same thing for about, well, it was a week solid. Um, but when I came back into town, what was it, uh, I guess Friday, because I was going to Mesquite Friday night, <laughs> I had like uh, $2 in my pocket, and there was a McDonald's there on Central on 35, I think it's at Mockingbird maybe? I don't know, but yeah, I stopped there, and I got me a Big Mac, and I was out of money. That was it, and I... Came home and licked my wounds for about a week, but I didn't make a single dime. Um, like I say, barely made it back home, but it was worth it. What year was that? Good question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> probably eight, probably ninety or ninety-one. I think uh, it was. I think it was in the early nineties. So we, we kind of jumped ahead, though. So tell me about, tell us about Dallas. How did you end up here with Dallas? How, how did that start? This should take up the rest of our time. <laughs> so, so like I said, when I graduated high school, well, in high school, I worked in an oil field welding shop. Because um, my mom instilled in us that you need to, you know, get your education and get a job. You have to be able to support yourself. That was her main thing, you know, be able to support yourself. So my senior year of high school, I uh, actually took my journeyman pipe fitters test and passed. So when I graduated high school, I went to American Bridge back in Orange where I was born and went to work there. Uh, But needless to say, in June and July, in the bottom of a barge in southeast Texas. Sounds great. In leather welding sleeves. Yeah, it just wasn't my cup of tea. However, I was making really good money for an 18-year-old kid. My mom had moved to Dallas at the time. I came up here to visit her, and I swear I was just walking down the street one day. And probably the greatest officer I ever, ever met, uh, Stephen LaHillier, he just pulled up to me and 
asked me if I ever thought about being a Dallas police officer. And I was like, no. <laughs> uh, because where I grew up, we had two DPS troopers that patrolled our city, well, the whole area. And they were two six, four white guys that were very intimidating, but very switched on. You know, they wore their shit the way you're supposed to. And so anyway, Steve goes, well, hey, come out and ride with me Friday night. And I'm like, what? I go, I wait, and I'm just this young black kid, you know, 161 pounds, 6'3". I'm like, I can come out and ride with you? He goes, yeah, come down to the Southwest substation because my mom was living at this time, and everybody will probably go, what? But at that time, it was a little different. But she lived on Orpage Circle. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, so um, I went down Friday, and then it was so easy you know, you just went into the station and signed your life away, and you were good to go. But when I walked in the station, I saw all those officers in that uniform looking at Josh right now. I think that's the best freaking uniform ever. You know, the department won several uniform contests that's for bad. years. Yeah. And bad. I said, never change that uniform. But anyway, everybody was switched on. You know, you had guys out there in patent leather and the boots. And, and then Steve was this huge guy that, was very intimidating. His partner was, uh, his last name was Brocker, who I think at one time was an offensive lineman for the Steelers. But he's this big old crew cut white guy, and I'm just like, oh my God, this is crazy. So we go out that night, first call out the box was a, they called it a gang fight at uh, Illinois and Zang. We get down there, and there's a bunch of kids, but Brocker's in the middle of them, and he's picking them up two at a time, one in each hand. He goes, are these the ones you want? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the other officers there were like, no. And he put them down and he'd pick up two more. And I'm just like, I was so intimidated, or not intimidated, but I was so impressed by these guys. I was like, wow. So at the end of the night, I asked Steve, I go, they actually pay you guys to do this? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, dude. He goes, just go down there to 2014 Maine and... And I'm like, oh, my God. So needless to say, I went home and, you know, I told my mom, I go, hey, I think I'm going to apply. And, of course, mom's being a mom, she got all worried. She was like, oh, are you sure that? And I'm like, mm, yeah, that is pretty cool. I go, that is. <laughs> and so I went down and talked to them. And, of course, they said, well, at that time, I wasn't old enough because I wasn't even 20 then. And I didn't have any college hours. So I, my wife says I'm very um, – What's the word? Uh, I get I get uh, caught up with something. I have to get it done. Persistent. Fixated. Um, Headstrong. Yeah. Yeah. All yeah. of them. Yeah. But yeah, I went down. I signed up for class at El Centro. <clears throat> I went and talked to the sheriff's department because they had a reserve program uh, that they allowed me to go through. I went through their reserve program. Took 12-hour semester class, as many classes as I could through El Centro Never got my associate, so I'm like illegitimate, but however, <laughs> the career I had, I don't care. But um, I got enough college hours, went through the sheriff's program, got a little experience, and just thought, oh my God, this is like, has got to be the coolest thing. Uh, applied with the police department, got on, and yeah, that. Did you did you have any relationship with those officers before they stopped and talked to you? Did you no, ever? You, they just was, randomly stopped it. Yeah. Like, hey, there's there's a yeah. There's only Stephen Hilder. No, he didn't it, say big. Like I said, I was six three. Yeah, one hundred sixty one pounds. Yeah, and he just pulled up. He approached me from behind. He pulled up next to me, 
And I was like, because I was, I can tell you, I was walking, what is that, southbound on Keast between Polk and Be westbound. Be westbound. Okay. Yeah. East-west, Keast right there. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he pulled up from the back and pulled up next to me and goes, hey. I go, yes, sir. He goes, have you ever thought about being a Dallas police officer? I'm like, no, sir. He goes, well, you should come out and ride with me Friday. Talk to it. Yeah, and I, I tell you, I probably should sign my pension check over to that guy. But, uh, <laughs> no, Steve's no. a good guy. You know guy. what they did? Uh, they noted the lean silhouette. <laughs> they noted the eyes sharp as a hawk. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, Again, we we talk about this a lot about being a calling. I mean, that was your that was truly was a it, you were called to it. And and I think the proofs in the pudding that that whatever he saw in you in that short amount of time was not even probably him doing that, right? That was that was the, the, the gateway for you to be where you're supposed to be. I think that's fascinating. And it shows the impact that officers have on people in every interaction they have with them every day. There's an opportunity to make an impression, a positive impression on somebody. Um, when we get we get caught up in the us versus them battle that we always get into, but when, when that officer took one second to just say, hey, why don't you come right out with us? And it's led to a whole lot that we'll get to in a minute. I think that's that's pretty impressive. Yeah, I don't know what to say. It's a lot of stuff I never knew about you. <laughs> it all makes sense uh, in a good way. In a good way, yeah, okay. Good way. That's how long is that? Um, a good way. As you started your career, so you, you are persistent about something. I know that as being a senior corporal with you in SWAT and being your supervisor in SWAT, <laughs> but also just knowing you as a human being. Um, as you get your college and you start your uh, your police career, did you at any point in time know what you were getting yourself into, the life of servitude that you were fixing to embark upon? I know uh, work ethic is very, very, very big in your in your vocabulary, in your actions, you're one of those people that your actions speak louder than your words. Most of the time, you're very quiet, and it's very hard sometimes to get you to speak up and voice your opinion on things. You're you're very humble in that sense where you sit. But uh, you know, as you started this, I mean, you you went to college, you became a reserve with the county, correct? Mm-hmm. And right. then went to college to be persistent in following this career path that you chose. Uh, at what point in time did you look at this? from a different light other than seeing these two officers and seeing these squared away individuals that, you know, that I'm, I'm glad you were exposed to. There's, there's a lot of times we look around today and sometimes it doesn't seem that way. Um, it's just a different day and time. But at what point did you realize, you know, what, what you'd embarked upon as you got into your career? You know, Josh, I don't think I ever realized it until after I retired because I think the Dallas Police Department did such a great job at the academy. I mean, when I came out of the academy, I was going to literally save the world. That's exactly how I felt. When I got that badge and that uniform, I was like, this, it's not going to get any better than this. And I went through my first three years. um, It was a whirlwind. I mean, I was out there working nonstop. It was my goal to answer as many calls as I could, write as many tickets as I could, which turned out to be, I won't say a bad thing, but it was a learning point for me during my career. And this isn't a bragging point, but I ended up winning the 1986 Rookie of the Year. And that was not intentional, but I had no officer discretion at that time. I was there, like I said, I came out and 
I was, I won't say invincible, but God, I was having a good time. And it was, excuse my French, but it was balls to the wall. And I was loving, I didn't have any regrets. Um, and I still don't about my career on the department. Um, but my, my turning point for me was when I finally wrecked enough squad cars. No, let me say totaled <laughs> enough squad cars for the department that I ended up going to dispatch for a year, which for me was my turning point because a year of being in dispatch taught me how to calm down. And I think that's where I learned my officer discretion because when you have, I don't know, 200, however many guys I had on patrol on third watch Southwest as a dispatcher, you become, you feel responsible for all those guys to know where they are because um, Gary Blair was killed on the second year I was on the department. And when that happened, I was maybe a mile away on the freeway working a freeway accident. So I never wanted to be in that position where I was working dispatch and somebody called and I not knew where they were. And if you've ever heard the tapes of that, Yeah, if you ever heard the tapes of Gary Blair, then you, from a dispatcher standpoint, you you would understand what I was talking about. But yeah, and I think I think you brought up a good point, and I don't know, Chris and Misty and Danny, you y'all can chime in on that piece. But uh, what you said is something that kind of resonates with me now. Uh, you you really don't. I don't think we get into this career path understanding what servitude is. Right? We we're you're 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 in a line of work that provides service, but when we're out there doing that, I mean, it's uh, whether it be answering calls or you know our time in SWAT, whatever it may be, it's you're you're always taking care of the person next to you, and you're always doing your job and trying to be as professional as you can for the individuals who pay your salary, right? There's a lot of times we deal with things we don't want to deal with and people we don't want to deal with, but we do it anyway. And I don't know that until maybe toward the end of your career, or like you said, you retire and then you look back and think, man. You know, this is this is a, a full career, and that's all it is, right? It's just servitude and service to just not from the perspective of people saying, well, thank you for serving, right? Well, yeah, but you serve your fellow officer on a daily basis. You serve your friends, your family, and uh, that's all it encompasses. I was just curious. Everyone has their own, you know, their own vision of that or their own ideal of that. So I shall digress. Misty. JT, did you go to Central? Is that where you did your patrol? Southwest. Uh, Southwest. Oh, Southwest. Okay. Southwest. Uh huh. Is there yeah. any other station? No, I don't. Oh. They, apparently, Southeast okay. is a there big was deal. Southeast. Right. Apparently, that's a big deal around here. Oh, I okay, think I've heard about that. Southeast. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have more Southeast officers. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. whatever. Okay. I got a uh, you know I got a coin for you from Southeast. So. <laughs> Make him feel special. Y'all got coins. We have a rest. But whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you went to Mounted pretty quick. Uh yeah. Did they well, recruit you? Well, so actually, uh, when I finished my year in communications, uh, I went to SWAT first. Okay. And that's the interesting part about how I feel the department has gone. So I'm working dispatch. And at that point, to transfer, you just, you know, basically sign your name to a transfer letter and send it up the chain, right? Um, Well, I put in for SWAT, mounted, and I think that was the only two. Um, Reason being... I saw Ivan Dennis in the credit union one day in uniform. And I'm like, oh, my God. And if you don't know Ivan Dennis, he was like this black guy with the 
salt and pepper hair, this big old mustache, all jacked up and in riding boots. And I was like, holy, I, that would be somewhere I need to be. But anyway, uh, SWAT came calling first, but I'm dispatching one night and two SWAT at that time, TAC officers, uh, Jody Hill and George Kleinmeyer come up to communications and I'm sitting on the console and they walk by and I'm like, man, look at those guys. And they were there to talk to me and they go, hey, so we hear you're interested in coming to SWAT. And I'm like, yeah, I would love to and blah, blah, blah. So where I think it's changed, the officers used to kind of do the interviews and make the selections for SWAT officers, which I think really made a difference in, uh, I think, the quality of officers that you get as opposed to now where it's it's a interview board with supervisors. And I think I'm a guy that thinks, I think the guys on the ground are the guys that have the best insight on what you need as a squad. <clears throat> but anyway, I digress. Um, so yeah, I went to SWAT that first right out of communication. And I think I was only there a year and a uh, position in Mounted came up. We were blowing and going in SWAT then. Um, was that when you guys were uh, baseball caps? Uh, yeah, yeah, we wore all kind of funky stuff. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, no helmet, oversized vest. Like we had like six heavy vests that everybody wore. Uh, they were funky, but you wore them over your class A uniforms because we would run warrants, <laughs> take that crap off, and go out there and, and work patrol. So, and it was nonstop. But Ivan Dennis uh, once again saw me one day and goes, "Hey." Um, I hear you are you are you rodeo and you like horses and all that. And I go, yeah. He goes, well, you know, we're gonna have an opening and mount it if you're interested. And I'm like, holy shit! Oh man, I, I'm like, I love what I'm doing, but I'm a cowboy and I can't imagine getting to wear this uniform, riding a horse in Dallas. I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm up for it. And then it was so much easier. I think if you were if there was an opening and like I said, people. You know, the officers knew you. They would come out, talk to you. And uh, so, anyway, I went to Mounted <clears throat> there for a very short length of time, probably two years, I think. Uh, and the commander, Scott McDonald Sr., uh, <laughs> and for you young guys, you may not remember, but Darren Coleman, that was when the Addison officer was uh, killed here in Dallas during a, a drug, drug warrant. So Darren left and the commander had an opening and I don't even know how he saw me, but he asked me if I was, in, oh, he knew me from my previous stint. He goes, hey, I'm going to have an opening. Would you be interested in coming back over to SWAT? I'm like, oh my God, I've been in my, I'm, I'm like, this is too good to be true. I'm getting to do the two best jobs in the department, I thought. I'm like, yeah. And there were some changes happening in Mounted that, um, I was I was like okay yeah I'll I'll go and I went back over to SWAT again. Uh, that's not the end of this though. <laughs> There's another switchback, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I go back to mounted again. I was in SWAT for I can't remember the length, but I was here for three or four years I think, and then went back to mounted for four years. Uh, it may have been even shorter than four, but I went back to mounted and I know I was there for four years that time, um, and then came back to SWAT and finished out there. Or at that time, it was what? Yeah. It's a long time, too. 
Yeah. In special ops. A lot, a lot of special ops time. A lot of SWAT time for that last run. Yeah. What did I get for that? Oh, yeah. A gold coin. Two right. brand new replaced knees. Yes. No, yeah, exactly. And yeah. an elbow. Yeah. And clean out elbow. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but yeah. I, I attribute all that to rodeo, not SWAT, though. It just didn't help. Well, I, I have to know did your rodeo skills transition? In mounted, and I can't imagine anyone looking any better than a mounted uniform than you. But um, did they transition, or was it easy? It's true. What? How good he looks in his uniform? Sort of. I know it's amazing. It really is. That I don't know what to hat. say to that. <laughs> don't, don't know why. That mustache. <laughs> I know. Just say thank you. Yeah, that campaign hat. That campaign hat. Yeah. Yeah. My so God. Yeah. No, uh, yeah, I think it, it made it easier for me, mainly riding all my life. Um, I kind of had the balance thing down, and I noticed that a lot of people struggle with that. But Mounted at the time had, when I went the first time, it was Tommy Sneed, who was, I would say, more of a Western rider. So obviously that transitioned to me pretty good. But when they changed trainers and Tom Hall became the trainer. Um, he went more to a uh, dressage type riding, or the department did. And I think that was good for the department. And I think Tom was probably the best mounted officer trainer in the country. I mean, the guy was a sponge when it came to that type of stuff. And, and I mean, he taught me a lot of stuff that, that uh, I didn't know at the time about dressage riding. But, yeah, it definitely transitioned and, and helped me out. I think definitely so. So you come back for the third time to SWAT, and that's where you stayed. What uh, We talk a lot in this room about critical incidences and things that, that happen in our career. Maybe maybe touch on something that, that stood out in your patrol time, or, or if not, what were the ones that stuck out in your SWAT career, those, those incidents that really stand out in your memory? Um, I didn't have many in patrol because it was such a whirlwind. I guess like for patrol for me, I stopped a guy on traffic one night, and working one man, and yeah, this was one of those times, one of those eye-opening experiences. Um, he was coming from my known drug apartments, and I ended up getting him out of the car and searching the car by myself. But I did put him in handcuffs at least, because there was a pistol under his front seat. Well, I found like, I don't know, uh, I think it was almost $70,000 of cash in a paper bag, and after everything is said and done, I look back and I go, wow, that was really stupid because where it could have went if the guy really didn't want to go, you know, we could have had an incident out there at Bahama Drive in Hampton, but it worked out. Um, SWAT wise, I think um, two of the best guys I've ever known that I never heard say anything bad about anybody. Um, their lives were altered in SWAT. Um, Dale Hagbarth and Doug Brady. Um, there's just two incidents, and I heard you guys talk about it on previous podcasts that things happen and you wish you were there. You just, you're just, it eats you up inside because you're like, could I have made a difference? Would I have made a difference? And I think those two incidents, and then of course Martell, which we were together on, um, those three are probably the biggest for me. Um, because they were really life-changing. For the first two, it was for those guys, because I've never heard either one of those guys say a bad thing about anybody, and their lives were completely changed. Uh, Martell <clears throat> is that thing, I don't know if they call it Misty, you can probably correct me if I'm wrong, 
But you tell officers not to get into, is it the white stage or the gray stage where you get lackadaisical, where you're not really thinking about what you need to do. And I think I got into that at Martell because we know the command told us we couldn't do certain things, but we shouldn't have gave up or I shouldn't have gave up. And uh, yeah, and so that's, that's it for me. I think those are pretty uh, kicks to the gut. What stands out to you with Oak, Oak Park or Duncanville Road? What stands out to you the most with those two incidents? Uh, I think just the fact that we made mistakes and it's not talked about. If you don't talk about your mistakes, then you never correct them. Um, both of those incidents, I think, were, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call them blue on blue. And especially, I don't know, both of those could have been corrected, all right? I'm not Nostradamus, and I'm not going to say. But no, I think both of those incidents could have been prevented, and the guys that were there, the guys and girls that were there, we all know, and after the fact, we just, we, would, we didn't talk about it because I think a lot of people said they didn't want to talk about it because those guys were injured and that was bad enough, but um, it, it, it wasn't talked about enough. And I think that that hinders you when you want to make things better. JT, you, you mentioned blue on blue. Now, obviously our listeners are first responders and people understand we do. We understand our lingo. When we're talking about blue on blue, we're talking about having a, a police officer on police officer shooting where we're actually engaging with somebody and probably not in the most tactful way. And we've caused some form of injury to another officer, hopefully not uh, death. But uh, I, I think that's one thing we probably need to clear up for individuals that don't understand that. And then um, which one of these incidents were first? It was Oak Park, oh. correct? Okay. And then Duncan, we came, Duncanville Road. Duncanville, yeah, okay, Duncanville, yeah. Road. That's Duncanville right. Road was Duncanville three. Road, right. And then that was the apartment. Oak Park was the house, right? Yeah. So do you want to go any more depth? And talking about those, I think it'd be good for people to hear just uh, not necessarily the incident particulars via names and whatnot, but just uh, when you have a critical incident like this and we have something, this is a turning point for law enforcement in general. This is something that we, as we know from our training standard in SWAT, uh, we, we train this uh, to exhaustion, right? We, we train our movements. We, we, uh, we, we train our placement. We we create our tactics based around our advantages, but at the same time, we create tactics that create safe environments for us. It starts on a static range and it goes straight and it goes straight into the shoot house uh, with uh, all the less lethal that that we utilize whenever we're doing the sim round training. You know, this is something that we train to exhaustion. You know, in law enforcement in general, you're taught that in in the academy, right? This is something that you have to be very critical of your your target and its background, right? And everything else in between, we're responsible for all that. So this would be, this is probably something that not only affects the individuals involved, but also just law enforcement in general. I know it affects every single one of us in the room. Obviously, it's something we strive not to engage in. So I don't know if you wanted to jump a little bit deeper into that or. Uh, just to touch on the point that I think both of those incidents could have been prevented if somebody, anybody on those teams would have spoke up. And I think that's 
something that I tried to teach in my last few years is that you take a squad, for instance, of we're of eight, right? Now I think we have squads of eight. You've got 16 eyeballs there, eight brains of grown college educated people who should have an opinion about stuff. And if you see something wrong or you don't agree with something, if you don't say something, then those type of incidents occur. So, um, Duncanville Road was a deal where um, it snowballed and nobody stepped up and said, stop, hold on a minute. Uh, I think that's where the lowest guy on the totem pole could have stepped up and said, no, 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 no. If you have to grab somebody in the collar, pull them back and go, listen, you've got to think about this. This isn't going to work because one person left, got kind of got out of control and it snowballed. It took everybody over. Now, I understand it was very hectic. Um, I wasn't in there. I'm going off of what I've been told and what I, I guess the facts that I've been uh, given. Um, but somebody should have stepped up to that and said, this isn't going to work. Because if you if you have a squad of operators, then everybody gets caught up in this this ball of, of out of controlness, then those are the incidents you have. Same thing on Oak Park. Um, when the when the shots rang out, um, I, I'm going to call it a cluster. You know, guys started scrambling and guys started squeezing off rounds, not knowing where they're going. You have to be better than that. And I think we all as a division knew at the time that, you know, certain people didn't need to be there. And there's no re. The way the department is set up, sometimes there's no recourse. You can go, me being a slick sleeve, you know, I can take it to my sergeant. I hope he'll take it to the lieutenant, but we all get caught up in this deal where nobody wants to hurt anybody's feelings. And I'm one that, you know, my feelings will mend. If I'm doing something wrong, I you have to tell me. Because if I can't see it, I don't know what's going wrong. So if you don't tell me, then, you know, we, we go down the wrong path. I mean, from, from that standpoint of what you're saying, yeah, it doesn't matter who you are on that team. If you see something that's unsafe, I mean, we do it on the line. We call a halt, right? And when right. things unfold and you have shots fired, we can't really call a halt, but we should be able to kind of see. I mean, I wasn't here for either of these, so I'm not going to comment on that perspective. I can only comment on my perspective as as a senior corporal being in there and then going back as a sergeant. And it was interesting to see the diversity. You all had to really pull me back in when I first started back over there because I felt like I needed to be indoors and and seeing those things and it was the outdoors that was the most important piece for that supervisor mm-hmm. it was almost like you orchestrate the entire thing you y'all are already doing your your movements and your tactics and everything's unfolding but as I spent more time on the out seeing it from that perspective it was a whole lot easier to start seeing the bigger picture and when we're involved in that number one number two number three number four including the breachers up front you have a very specific role and a very specific job. That's why we do uh, all the briefings. That's why we're very particular and very meticulous with our briefings, and people commented that on to us all the time. Well, you guys just keep doing this over and over again. Well, yeah, you, you need to know that your job. You need to know who's next to you doing their job, and it's for that reason, right? It's for we have our, our points where we fall back to if, if need be. Uh, we have our, uh, our, our points where we, we start from, but at the same time, you know, it's the – Everybody needs to know the task and role of everyone else, but that's why we train to nauseam 
uh, with a lot of these things, but being able to see it from the outside was always really neat. And when it finally evolved for me, I was like, wow, this is crazy. Because then you can start seeing it all. And it was very interesting. But For, for our listeners at home that, that don't know JT, you're, you're a large black man. Thank you, Chris Webb. Yeah. Um, no, you said something earlier. You know, I, I've known you since 2007. Um, and it, yeah, that's when I got moved over. In 2007, I know you're old. Thundercats. You're, you're the Thundercats. Um, I've known you since 2007. In fact, back my first day, you you carried me over your shoulder like a sack of potatoes, and I, I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know who you were. I don't think I can do that now. <laughs> I know Chris was put on a lot of sides. <laughs> little, little, little fat. Um, but you said something earlier that that really stands out to me because we got to be really, really good friends. We lived by each other. We spent a lot of time together, obviously, in, in the team. And you said something. And it really, it really struck, stuck out to me because you say your mom raised you being colorblind, but you were raised in a part of Texas at a time when that wasn't cut. You were probably the few people that were trying to be colorblind. I mean, you literally were talking about crosses being burnt in yards, something that the rest of us in this room never had to worry about. Um, you, 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 you go down, you're, you're in our page circle. By the way, did you ever run a warrant in our page circle? While you were close, okay, I figured it'd probably be pretty close. You, you, you came to Dallas in eighty. What was it? He hired on in eighty four. You hired on in eighty four. So, and I know you, and I've never felt like what little we've talked about race. It's been so little. You, you've never. You really are colorblind, but yet you are the person that has seen things that, that a lot of us have never even dreamed of seeing. And your mentality has always, I really feel you've always looked at people for who they were, no matter what they, what color they were, what race they were, what gender they were, when you had every right to to not. I mean, and then you go do 35 years in the city of Dallas. Tell me, what's, you say that your mom was the root of that, but yet y'all, I mean, you grew up in a really hard place. How, I've never heard you be the victim to anything. I mean, you're a freaking man amongst men. Where, where did that come from? Oh, I wish I had an answer for you, Chris. Um, There's a guess, lot of stuff in there. Yeah, I, I mean, needless to say, we took a lot of harassment as uh, young black cowboys in Kirbyville, both from black and white. Now, my friends, I mean, and I mean that, like we were always called goat ropers and even here uh, on the department, you know, there was officers that were like, you're what? You ride bulls? And I'm like, no, I don't ride bulls. I ride barbecue horse. And they're like, oh, you ride bulls. You ride bulls. And I'm like, uh. So there's, <laughs> there's been that, you know, that um, I guess that arrest, which maybe toughened me up. I don't know. I, I don't know, Chris. I just, I don't know. I, I'm like you said, I, I judge you for your character, not for your, for your for your outward appearance, because uh, something I've always been a firm believer in, you know, the eyes are the windows to the soul, which I'm sure everybody's heard of that. But I think that that plays so true. That plays so true. I was on Duncanville Road, the incident that he was talking about, and it was before we were teammates. I can't. We were t- teammates in the middle of my SWAT career, and so things really made sense once I became teammates with you, because you were the voice of reason. You had the experience and the meticulous attention to detail. 
but it made sense to me why because I was on Duncanville that was my first hostage rescue and um, upon arrival we have three officers shot Patino coffee and Sergeant Fluche and and then we have two dead citizens upon arrival and then as it played out the hostages were saved and the suspect was in the in the bedroom bathroom alone and um, I've got to witness firsthand a, a team of chaos and and then later on I, I see uh, Doug Brady with a fused elbow because of blue on blue and I watched him come back to SWAT after his injury and pass it one-handed like the biggest badass I've ever seen and incredible operator and so I had to I witnessed that firsthand and um, I'm so thankful that I'm, I was on a team with you because and you understand this too Chris we went to you for guidance because you were the calm seasoned decision maker the voice of reason and you believed in preparation and and I understand why because you had to see your close teammates friends injured and even Hackbarth walking around with a limp because of blue on blue and those things like you said can be solved but I, I'm so thankful I got to witness it firsthand and learn from you and the preparation um, and the meticulous concentration and training and I, but I, I'm, I understand it tell us your philosophy like your philosophy on training let, let our listeners hear that. Tactical pause. <laughs> we need a tactical pause. We think about that, my philosophy. When yeah. we built that range, you were a perfectionist because you didn't want your name on something that wasn't done right. I really feel like that goes into training, too. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think you... To me, it's very simple that if... and for me on being on a on SWAT or on a team because obviously I've never competed in a team environment basically before I got on the SWAT team I did all individual stuff right so when I got on the team it, it was pretty simple to me that if we are all on a team I have a job you have a job we all have jobs but the philosophy is I have to know what all your jobs is right so if anything happens, I need to be able to do what you're supposed to do. And you've got to be able to do what I'm supposed to do. And it's, and the tactics that we use are very simple. It's not complex. It's not algebra. It's just, you know, go in a straight line. And if you have to deviate, make sure you're not crossing somebody else's line, if that makes sense. It's almost like shooting. But it's just know your job and, and, and do your job. And do it the way you're taught because, you know, we've got some fantastic instructors. You get instruction from all over the state. You know, you guys had Dan Calasanto on here, who I think is a great instructor. He's, And I've never had an instructor that I didn't take something from, okay? I mean, even the worst of ones. There was something that I got from them. And it's just, you know, like I said, it's a very basic, simple philosophy to me. And that is do your job and know your job know your 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 responsibility and stay within stay within yourself don't you can't don't overextend it, it's 
you know, like I, I think I told you guys once that train, I can't remember exactly how I did. I said, but I, we need you to be born stormers, but we don't need cowboys or something like that. We don't need you running wild. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. We, we need you to blow and go, but you got to maintain it. You know, high speed, low drag. That's what we need. I know that doesn't make any sense. My, to my first call out with you, I had just went to the tents. And I was, I was with you. We were headed to the seaside of a house. And I was carrying too much gear. Thank you for teaching me how to, <laughs> to minimize that. But I was carrying too much gear. And my, my toe hit a, a tree stump in Oak Cliff. And, you know, your top-heavy turtle. And I fell <laughs> on my face. But you didn't see it because you were ahead of me. And I was trying to keep up with you. And I was up so fast because I was so worried about you seeing me and I was an idiot because I wanted I wanted your respect so bad. And that's the kind of presence that you had on our team. Yeah, yeah but Misty, you have no idea that you have all the respect in the world. I've never had anybody kick my ass. I mean, I've I've cussed you so much, but out of love, out of love. But that back dog, man, we were, God, she used to put us through it. Piece of my soul's on that back yeah, yeah. somewhere, a, blowing a piece around of my like the leaves. And a piece of my hand are still on, <laughs> on that the, rope. Bar or the rope, yeah. Where we did, I can't tell you how many rope climbs, yeah. and JD did them all with with no legs. Yeah, just yeah. straight. L, and nobody would L stop. Climbs. Nobody wanted to quit. No, they said y'all gonna come to detail. No, we're still no. a hundred degrees, yeah. and we're out there going. doing Nobody our workout and our gas mask. <laughs> but you know what? I'm, I'm thankful for that because when when you and I were up in that attic, where it was a hundred degrees in that, February, in February on Valentine's Day, it was our Valentine's I'm, Day. I was day. thankful for JT's gas yep. mask workouts. <laughs> <laughs> well, to mirror what Misty said, there was always that common voice. It, a first, right. You, you never wanted to. Well, I talked about a Martell. The, the worst look I've ever had was when when JT looked over the balcony, like, "No, I need you up here," and I'd fallen, and I'm yeah. like, "Crap, I pissed off, I pissed off JT." The one thing about JT, if he was mad at you, you knew it, and you didn't want JT mad at you. So that that was a motivator in and of itself. And then I can tell you how many times we would be doing something on a live operation, and I would just hear that the voice of reason, the voice of reason. Hey, slow down, mm-hmm. and you're like, "Oh, okay, I'm back." Yeah, I, I got it. Martel, I didn't know you had fallen until after the fact, so I apologize. <laughs> so disappointed in me. So disappointed. JT, when I was there as a senior corporal, I was in the other unit. So, of course, as we shrunk, we started working more and more together. Um, when I went back there as a supervisor, you know, I I went over the 40s, and uh, I really enjoyed my time there. Uh, the one thing I did do a lot was not only did I speak to Scott, but there's a lot of times, as you know, I pull you aside and talk to you. And a lot of times it was hard to get your opinion out because you're ah, Josh, no one wants to hear it. No, no, no. But, yeah, I did. I really did want to hear it. And uh, it was always good having that to go back to, right? Um that's a very difficult position, just being there in general and being there as a supervisor, especially when not only you want to earn the respect of everybody, but you want to, uh, I don't know the word, the, the phrase to use, but as a supervisor, especially once you've been there before, you kind of already know the quirks. You kind of already know the things that people want to work on and have tried to get away from. And everybody that comes through there, sometimes, 
say everybody, but not not everybody. Some people always want to reinvent the wheel, right? When the wheel was already invented, and we just probably need to take a couple burrs out of it here or there. But I always enjoyed that. Um, matter of fact, I just sent Misty and Joe. I can't find it. I'd send it to you. I've showed it to you before. A picture of uh, 30-year-old Josh and how old are you now, JT? 58. You don't look 58. You don't look 58. No. Looks uh, like 60. Early 40s, uh, <laughs> early 40s JT down on that range. And uh, it's funny to look back at that, but then to, to see how all this has transpired. Mm-hmm. And then also having you go back over and go to the equipment area, you know, go down and manage all that stuff. That's that's a no bullshit area too because yeah. it's, it's stuff. there's a lot of upkeep that goes with that. But then having your knowledge and passing that on. I think kind of touches on kind of what Misty was talking about as far as your training philosophy and just your philosophy in general. Yeah. You know, um, where is your mom today? Uh, deceased. Um, if she was here, what would you say to her? Because it seems like you, we all develop our own, our own path in life, right? Mm-hmm. But your mom was instrumental with you at a very young age. And uh, not, not only that, but your work, right? It's not easy. I'm, I'm not a cowboy, so I have no clue, but I can only imagine, although I do watch Yellowstone, so sometimes <laughs> I feel like a like cowboy. Yeah. But, uh, oh, yeah. Four sixes. Uh-huh. Four sixes. That's one they mentioned on the uh, deal. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, after this is over, i got something to tell you. Okay. <laughs> but I guess where I'm going with it is not, not only have you been in the <clears throat> trenches with different jobs, right? Yeah, you came here, but it seems like your mom was instrumental in developing this and you've carried it forward right and just mm-hmm. move move through your life with that what would you say to her if she was here today? uh obviously first and foremost i'd say i'm sorry for all the gray hair i gave her because <laughs> needless to say i gave her a lot in high school um but no i i learned from her i watched her and that's where all this comes from um something my aunts used to say about my mom was that she had a she didn't have a place for the inequities of other people. So, like, if somebody screwed something up, she was like, or she would get in their butts. But, um, no, I just, I I think I got this ethic from, from her work ethic. That's, I mean, that's all I can say. I, I grew up watching her and, and what she instilled in us and pretty basic. Just so, I'm sorry and thank you so much. So now, retired JT, dad, granddad, dog dad, most spoiled dog in America, from what I can tell. He has a free run, or is it she? No, it's he. It's a he. Um, I know that you did 35 years, and when I talked to you early about what you were going to do, you were like, nothing. I'm going to do nothing, and I'm going to love it. And that's what you've been doing. You've enjoyed your retirement. But transitioning out of this job is not easy for everybody. So I'm sure that in this time that you've been out, you could probably speak to some people who are on the way out or about to leave. Man, what's what's that? What's some advice you would give to people who are who are on their way out, especially after thirty something years of doing this this thing? Uh, I think first and foremost, make sure that's what you're ready to do. I was very comfortable with leaving because, like uh, Josh said earlier, I was in tests or the equipment section. Um, I was no longer on the team, which kind of got me a little bit because, man, I still missed it watching those guys do their stuff. And 
And I'm like, man, and like Josh said, also, when you're on the outside looking, you see a lot of things and I'm just like, man, I wish I could still do that. But when it came time for me to retire or when I thought it was time, I was comfortable with it. And um, I didn't have any regrets. And I was talking to you guys earlier. I, I miss it. I definitely miss the camaraderie, but I would hate to be an officer now with the political climate. However, when all this, what, a year ago started with all the riots and everything, I swear to God, I was looking at my phone like, am I missing a phone call? Because I just knew they were going to call me and go, we need you <laughs> we back, JT. That we need the voice to raise it. But the, the call never came. So Get your gear ready. Yeah, <laughs> I kicked the rock down the road and kept putting on. But yeah, it's just uh, make sure that you're ready and that's what you want to do. Uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna choose another uh, career path, by all means, go for it. But you know, make sure that you have got something to occupy your time, and you're going to uh, stay occupied, basically. Love With it. golf, golf and working golf. out. Yeah. Is that what we're doing? Yeah. And, and painting. And planting flowers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Painting islands. Yeah. I think they call those honeydews. Yeah. 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 <laughs> It's amazing. I'm sure Wendy has a lot. It gives you a lot of help planning your day every day. Uh, well, it ebbs and flows. Yeah. <laughs> when I get too comfortable, the list comes out. Yeah. I got to ask this. So who's the one person that maybe you haven't mentioned that's influenced you or that you feel gratitude towards on this department that, that influenced you, like helped you? Uh, probably he's retired now. Uh, Sergeant Larry Abney. Um, you know, his wife, I think was the first female, uh, on patrol, maybe Norma Abney, but yeah, um, he was my first supervisor in mounted and, um, I was a little wild and woolly then. And, um, he kind of saved me uh, from a scrape. And so I was like, that was probably my second eye opening experience that, okay, I, I need to kind of rein it back in and settle down a little bit. Um, but yeah, I probably... Larry, um, but I'd like to say this, my 35 years on the department, and I know the last 20 so were, were in special ops, but I never, I won't say never, but as far as supervisors go, and I've had a lot, but I've only had two that I really did not agree with, right? So I say that to say that I think the department is doing a good job with their supervisors, or they were while I was there. Um, Josh was one that was, I mean, I just never had a problem with them. So I think they all influenced me because like I said, I grew up on this police department. I think this was, I guess, my training ground for life. Uh, I was on this department. So, uh, it's a plethora of people. Um, the commander was definitely a good guy. Um, yeah. Was the uh, commander the best SWAT supervisor? I know, I'm putting well, you on the spot. Yeah, yeah, uh, go. yeah, make sure uh, you well, I'll tell you what. It, for I'll say for his generation, yes. And I think the second I would have to put second behind him would be Eddie Fuller. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, Josh was, you were there. You're just, you're just a kid, though. That's all. I mean, just young. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no. Join the group of kids. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, it was, yeah, they're, they're all outstanding guys. They really were. Well, I just want to say thank you. You, 
I, I, I mean, we had a team that had incredible chemistry. I mean, there's a lot of ass grabbing going on, but yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah. But you really were the example. Yeah, thank you. I can't. Yeah. I mean, your uniform was immaculate, no matter what we did, no matter how sweaty we were. Pressed seam I mean, on all his BDUs; they were never wrinkled. Mine just, were always wrinkled. Your presence just <laughs> demanded respect, and your actions backed it up. And it's just, um, it was an honor to be on your team. Yeah. Thank you. And have you sitting in our saddle today. <laughs> 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 yeah, I just wanted to thank you, JT. I appreciate everything you've done over the years. Uh, most definitely, uh, as an individual going over there very young, you were one of those who were always there to help. Uh, regardless whether we were in the same unit or whatever, there was always something that if I had a question, I knew I could come to you about it. I knew you were very versed in a, in a lot of different things, more than you wanted to admit to, i.e., I didn't know you welded until the last go-around on that house. So I was like, man. You're trying to keep that a secret. He's like, yeah. He's yeah, the smartest one of all of us. He did keep it a secret. Yeah. He saw all the work going yeah, on down there. He's, he's like, like oh. yeah. Yeah. Jude, <laughs> but, Jude, uh, Jude, Jude, you. Yeah, Jude yeah. finally got me. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> yeah, Jude. You got Jude. It's the same as being broed by somebody else. So it's no yeah. big deal. Yeah. But uh, no, but seriously, thank you so much. Uh, you know, and even as a young supervisor, as a kid. Uh, yeah, you were always there to, to help regardless. You know, I always appreciated your opinion, always respected your opinion. And, uh, yeah, I just I just appreciated it. And I really appreciate your service. I really thank you so much for everything you've done. You know, you're one of those people, too, regardless of whether you want to admit it or not. You've you've laid influence on a lot of different individuals. And uh, so you've you, too, are one of these that have left your mark here. Whether you know that or not, if you don't, then you should know that. Yeah. So thank you, thank you. Well, yeah, and just to add into that, your life was always more fun when JT was around, and you always laughed, you always had a smile, um, but you also, like Misty said, you were the calming voice of reason that we needed a lot, um, and I know that I was a better SWAT operator because of you, and. Um, I, just being in this room right now with you and laughing with you, I miss, I miss that. I know we all, we can probably all I miss being in the back seat of that Tahoe with dad. <laughs> with dad, <laughs> with dad, getting coffee, getting coffee. Um, <laughs> so many adventures. So Spotless many, Tahoe. This, yeah, don't spill anything because <laughs> you're going to hear about it. And he'd be back. Come on, kids. He literally calls. We were his children. Now, it, it, it just, just a reminder of how much fun it was and uh, how valuable that time of my life was then and still is now uh, affecting how I do things in my current job. Uh, so thank you. And I, I, I'm still mad at you for moving. You should have stayed my neighbor, but whatever. I think we're good. We're going to wrap it up. It's a good way to end it, as Joe said. Ladies and gentlemen, badge 5047. <laughs> <laughs> sister I'll never give up on you hey mrs. hey mister I'll see this all the way through no matter how far the sun and the moon I'll never give up on you
I'll be your shoulder Together we'll run Up from the bottom Yeah, we'll rise above Hey brother, hey sister I'll never give up on you Hey missus, hey mister I'll see this all the way Never give up on me.